You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. It's page 663 in the Pew Bible. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Carrie. And as a reminder, these minor prophets that are found at the end of the Old Testament, these prophets are not called minor because of their importance. It's just that they're short. Um, and, and what we find that these 12 books were actually spanned hundreds of years of prophecy. But um, what they were, do- they, they were put together into one scroll. And, you know, really imaginative people, they, just, they called it the 12. You know, really bright people there. They called it the 12. But these 12 minor prophets were put into this one scroll. Um, and today, we're looking at the next prophet, as we find listed in the scriptures, it's this prophet Micah. And we find that he preached around the same time as the prophet Isaiah, well-known prophet, um, around the 8th century B.C. And, and the nation of Israel, they had experienced, just to give you some background, they had experienced 40 years of peace and prosperity. And, but where Micah was preaching... He was preaching right at the end of that, right before the nation was about to take this big fall. Because though the nation had experienced this prosperity and peace, didn't mean they were righteous before God. And sometimes we automatically associate the two. If things are going well, God must be pleased. That was not the case here. Things were going pretty well for the country, for for the city, but God was not pleased. And Micah was prophesying just before the fall of the nation. And we read a description of some of what was going on in chapter 7 as Micah speaks. And he's personifying as the people of Judah. And look with me at chapter 7, starting verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And what we see described here is just a chaotic situation. And as you, as you were hearing that, and for me, as I was reading it, I couldn't help but imagine, man... I could see many people even in our own city saying very similar things as they look at the state of the city. Man, there's not enough food to eat. 
My cravings are not satisfied. People are lying in wait to do harm and to do violence and to do evil. As they see violence spreading through the city. We can't trust our politicians. We can't trust our leaders. People are just out to make a name for themselves. They're not, they don't care about those who are hurting. People are taken by bribes. Yo, you can't even trust your family. You can't trust your neighbors. We used to be a city that we could trust our neighbors. But now a mom will have horrific violence done to her because she speaks out and no one will say who it is. No one's going to snitch. It's the state of the city. And in the same way Micah's talking about the decay he sees through God among the people. It's, it's really a decay. But their fallenness, it, it was more than just bad behavior. It was also seen in their posture towards God. Um, there's a really painful description in chapter 2, verse 11. It says, If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I mean, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be hilarious. Well, he, basically, he's saying, yo, you can have some fool just talking foolishness and talking wind, basically just talking like nonsense out of his mouth. But if he's going to give some beer, if he's passing out a 40, if he's got a keg, yo, everyone's going to call him a prophet. We're going to listen to him. It's like, it's like ridiculous, but it's saying that the people had no desire to know what God really said. But whatever is going to fill their cravings, they'll listen to it and say, oh, God is speaking. They don't want to actually submit themselves before God. Because you've got to remember, Micah's not describing judgment against a foreign pagan nation. He's talking about the people of God here. He's speaking to those who call themselves followers of God because they have made God in their own image. And you can usually tell a false prophet, a false prophet will say things that make people happy, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with God. That's what's going on here. And reminds us that at its root, sin is a matter of the heart. Micah chapter 3, verse 2, it describes this, the people here, this dynamic. It says, you who hate the good and love the evil. I mean, such an on-point description of sin. It's ultimately sin is uh, in your heart's desire, you, you, you love things that are evil, and you hate things that are good. And this is a bleak setting. I mean, a lot of the minor prophets are kind of bleak, right? This is a, this is a bleak setting. Um, but as grim as it seems, Micah was not hopeless. I mean, you remember that passage I read in the beginning from chapter 7, right? Sounds hopeless. He's describing the state of the people. It sounds really bad. But here's the fascinating thing. Right after he gave those first six verses, here's what it says in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. But, that word but, it's a real significant word in the scripture. Because it's saying, y'all just heard this stuff, but here's something contrary to that. Yeah, the people are wicked. The people are evil. We are set for destruction. But I will set my hope on God. What, what Micah is saying is that he does have hope in the midst of this horrible spiritual state. But his hope is not in himself. His hope is not even in the people. His hope is in the God whom he trusts. These are some deep spiritual truths here. That sometimes when things are really bad, that's the place where God is often going to reveal himself and work. Um, as a parent, I would love, especially as my children get older, I would love if when they're doing really well, they run to me. 
Like when they're doing really well and they got something to celebrate, boom, they're, out, they're off to me and they want to share. And they, um, the reality is the times when often, and maybe parents you can identify, the times when your parents come screaming for you most is when they're fearful, when they're scared, when they're terrified, when things are not going well. That's when you often see them making a beeline to you and crying out to you. And in the same way, often as the people of God, I would love to say that we cry out and worship God when everything's going well. We don't. Sometimes. But when things are really bad, often we're on our knees crying out, saying, God, you need to do something here. And, and I even see that in our city right now. I, I see in our city things like these gatherings, going to neighborhoods and marching and praying and praying against violence and, and trying to talk about ceasefires and coming together and gathering to pray and going to each other's churches. That normally does not happen, guys. You know that, right? Churches are very territorial, very tribal. They're about their own thing. But sometimes it takes a, a cataclysmic event in the city and say, y'all, y'all need each other and you need God. And we come crying out for the presence of God. We humble ourselves. We get on our face. We say, this is beyond us. We've tried our way, and we're seeing the futility of those efforts. We need someone who's bigger than these things. And we cry out for God. It's what we see in in chapter 4 of Micah, starting from the beginning of chapter 4, where it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. God here, he's giving a foretaste of what is to come, that one day he will be fully exalted. He's already exalted, but everyone will know it. He will be in full victory, and all the peoples will come, representing many nations. And they're going to come. But why do they come here? Look at the last words I read there. That he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. In another way, why are people going to come to God? Because they want to learn. What do they want to learn? They want to learn what is a life that pleases God. What is a life that pleases God? And it's the verses that Carrie read for us. And let me read it again from chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. What is a life that pleases God? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Remember, this is a religious people. Um, It doesn't mean they're righteous, but they're faithful in exhibiting their religious behavior. They go to worship. They, they, they go to temple. They're offering sacrifices as prescribed in the Bible. They do all their sacrifices. And, and you got, we got a note here. This is not saying sacrifice in and of itself is bad. It's easy to read to say, oh, God, God's not into that. No, actually, that's contradicting Scripture because God has laid out these rules for sacrifice. But what we see here is, rather, God is not pleased with a mere sacrifice if it doesn't reflect the heart. If, if we give sacrifices, even if we give our firstborn, if it doesn't reflect the heart of worship before God, he's saying, what does that matter? What, what does that matter if you're involved in all this activity? 
What does it matter if you come and sing all the songs and do all the chants and kill all your animals and sprinkle blood everywhere, even if you bring your firstborn? What does it matter if your heart is not reflecting a humble submission to worship this God? And God then gives the prescription of what a heart that is for him looks like. What does God require? We see these different things. What does God require? He requires that we act justly. God requires that we act justly in verse 8. And I want to refer you to Pastor Larry's sermon from a few weeks ago on, from the book of Amos. Just tremendous uh, description of what justice looks like. So I'm not going to go fully into it here. If you haven't heard it or if you did hear it and you want to hear it again, go to the website. Listen to it as he talks about justice. But simply a few thoughts. This word that we see for judgment, mishpat, for judgment, it means God's wisdom. It means his law. It means God's justice. And, and it's fascinating if you do a, script, a study in the Bible because there are nine words in the scriptures that are associated with this word justice. Widow, fatherless, orphans, poor, hungry, stranger, needy, weak, and oppressed. Those are nine words that are associated with this word when we hear uh, mishpat, justice. Another fascinating thing, on, kind of related, in this list of words, there's one word you do not find. It's called rich. The word rich is not associated when you talk about those who are supposed to show justice. Uh, rich is actually often associated with injustice. And I want to be really clear here for some of you social justice warriors that are all about rich is bad. And, uh, the Bible's not that simplistic. Um, it's not evil to have wealth. It's not evil to have money. It's not evil to own a home. Don't you feel guilty if you've got a mortgage? It's okay. It's not necessarily evil, but here's what it does mean. You don't have to worry about the rich because they have the means when they face injustice. When the rich face difficulty, they've got the means to take care of themselves. So you don't have to worry about them. Rather, worry about the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor, the hungry, the stranger, the needy, the weak, and the oppressed. Justice means that we are to work for the well-being of those who do not have anyone else advocating for them. That's what justice is. This pleases God. And, and this is more than just feeling compassion. I mean, most of us, we can feel compassion. This is a command given of active obedience. This is something meant to be lived out here. Do justice. That's what's prescribed here. So just, just make it really, really real. Um, God forbid something happens to me. Some tragic incident happens um, I have pretty, pretty, pretty good confidence, and maybe I'm overestimating. I don't think I am, though. But I have a pretty strong confidence that something happened to me. There would be a whole tidal wave of people from here, but also from outside of here, who would come around, who would support, who would bring, who would start a food train, who would start a, a website to raise funds, who would say, we're going we're gonna to take care of this. We're going to take what we can do and we're going to make a difference here. We're going to rally. We're going to do something. I have a very clear confidence I think something like that would happen. And that's good. I'm not discouraging that. That's real good. I would say that's evidence of God's work in the community. But I would also want to say this. Godly justice is actively doing for others what you would also do for your family for your friends, 
for your loved ones, for those that you're expected to do those things for. Godly justice is doing the same things for those that maybe have no relation to you at all, who should kind of shock people when you do those things because they're like, how, how do you know them? I don't. What? But God. That, that's godly justice. Because godly justice, it's, it's caring for things not just because they impact you, but because they impact another image bearer of God, whether you have relationship with them or not. So I, I feel my family is extremely blessed. I, I just do. Spiritually, but also materially. So my children have never had to have a single meal where, where, where they're wondering how are they going to fill their bellies. They've never had to. But it doesn't mean that there are other children in our city that do. So that's an issue of justice for me. My children have never had to worry about whether they're going to be able to go to the doctor and someone's going to pay for that through this thing called insurance. Because we have insurance. I'm not going to call it affordable, but we've got insurance. Justice is saying there are many who don't. And again, this is not meant to be a political statement in some ways. I'm not advocating for one position or another, but I'm saying it requires us to think about it. It requires us to do something and not just criticize all of the different options out there, but to say, this is a matter when someone doesn't have something that's available to others. My kids, they don't have to worry about the education they receive, whether in home or in school, because they get a pretty good darn good one. But that's not the case for every child in our city. So that should make us say, what is being done for me has to be done for someone else as well, because that's what justice is. Justice is saying, I see something that's inequitable among others. Is there something I can do about it? Is there something about acting justly, doing justice? That's biblical, godly justice. Doing for others what you would want done for you, your family, your loved ones. What would you want someone to do for your family in the event of a tragedy? That's biblical justice, doing that for someone else. So God requires of us that we act justly. What does God also require? Love kindness. So act justly and love kindness. And and we can describe kindness in many different ways. Compassion, um, sympathy, gentleness, benevolence, helpfulness. And I think there's this one story, pretty well-known story, at least among like theology seminary nerd types. The stories get passed around, but it's a pretty good story, I think, that explains some of this. But there's this story about these theological students who are, who are training at school. And they were in the middle of preparing for the ministry. And these students, they were taking their final examination on this topic um, concerning the French philosopher Immanuel Kant and his moral imperative. Basically, what does it mean the, uh, philosophically to be a good person? So their final exam was a two-hour writing exam where they would write for the first hour, they would get a 10-minute break, and then they would write again. Two hours straight writing, talk about Immanuel Kant and all of his uh, moral imperative. So these, these students, they're all like scribbling furiously for 55 minutes and writing everything they've known and everything they've studied about what does it mean to be a moral person according to this philosopher and the implications of it. And then they got their break. They get a 10-minute break, so they go into the hallway, and all the students obviously go out there to go get a drink of water, to talk to one another, to use the restroom, take a little break. And, and as they go out there, they see another student who's not in their class, like disheveled, hump, hump, uh, humped over, kind of on the ground, looking really jacked up. 
But then the break is over, they go back in and they scribble for the rest of the second hour to finish up their exam. And what happens, a few weeks later, they got their test results back and they all failed. <laughs> they all failed. Because the exam wasn't actually about that paper they were writing. The exam was, the professor was out there in the hallway watching them as they come on the break and see someone who's in obvious hurt, obvious pain, obviously is not doing well, and they all didn't say a single word to him. They ignored him. And it was an object lesson in what kindness is. That we don't just walk by. We show compassion. We show mercy. Because, and I'll, I'll do a mini rant here. Some of you might think my whole sermons are rants, but it's not. I'm actually kind of low-key. Yeah, I'll give it a little rant, though. Um, I love that we live in a generation now, 2017, Wi-Fi. I love the Amazon information age where we have everything at our fingertips. We have... There are people, saints from hundreds of years ago, that would look at what we have now and they would just salivate. Like, you mean you can pull up a book at a moment's notice? You can pull up, like, theological treatises, like, hundreds of pages, and it's like a little file on your thing called a computer? What's that? Seriously? And you don't have to pay for some of it? You can, like, steal? Seriously? You can get any book and a drone will bring it to your house in an hour? What? You mean you can go on to an audio and you can listen to sermons from all around the world and you don't have to pay for it? What? And I think that's a good thing. I, I mean, we should be thankful. I, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Wi-Fi. I'm thankful for, I got what, 4G. I'm thankful for it. But here's, I think, the subtle danger we have. I think we have somehow started to associate those spiritual maturity with more information accumulation. We have become a people who are probably smarter, have more information, have more theological knowledge than anyone in history, yet I don't know if that's spiritual maturity. Because what I see is a lot of very smart theological people getting on Facebook and having like dumb arguments over theological points about who truly knows this or that. Or that. And I'm not saying those things are not important. But I, I don't know. The more information we have, I, I think I'm seeing like less and less kindness, actually. Less and less civility. Less and less like basic human dignity being affirmed in one another. It it almost seems like the more we have, and the Bible kind of talks about it, right? Like pride puffs up or knowledge puffs up, stuff like that. Like sometimes having more that we know doesn't necessarily translate to spiritual maturity. Because we see here, what does God call spiritual maturity? What does it call pleasing him? Loving kindness. Loving kindness is one of the means by which we show that we're growing to know God more. That we're becoming more like him. Are we growing in kindness? Are we growing in mercy? And it's always important for us to remember that in the Bible, the people that we express kindness to, it's far more radical than even what the world would say. Because what the world would say, yeah, you know what, you are totally on, preacher. You know, I don't like like 99% of what you say, but this is true. Yeah, man, we need more civility. We need to be better with one another. We got to be more kind. We got to respect one another. Um, But what the Bible says is that we actually show this kind of kindness, not to just those people who would show that, that kindness back, but to people even who we don't think deserve that kindness. That's the radical nature of biblical kindness when we say we love it. We're loving those people who we maybe have no reason to express kindness to. 
because it's the stories like the Good Samaritan. What's one of the things that just blows your mind about the Good Samaritan story and others throughout the scripture like it? It's that the stranger stops for someone he doesn't know. That's biblical kindness there. That's loving kindness. Again, I hope you guys are kind to one another. I think that's one of the marks of this church I love, if you, if you get to be rooted here. I think there's genuine kindness. But guys, biblical kindness goes beyond just this room. And it goes to those even with whom you might not have a relationship. Because it pleases God when we have kindness and mercy. So we see what pleases God? Act justly. What pleases God? Love kindness. What also does God require? Walk humbly. Walk humbly. And I want you to just take a moment here. Ponder that word walk. Just meditate. Think about that word walk. Because it's intentional. Because there's other parts in the Bible that uses words like run. Like run. Like, so it's saying, no, no, don't just kind of say, you run. You know, what? race for this thing. Go to win. So when it says here walk, this is very intentional here. Because walk implies kind of a measured approach. Walking, in some sense, is the opposite of running and rushing. Walking is moving at a very deliberate pace. And we see here this word humility. Again, meditate upon that. Let that marinate in your soul. What does humility mean? Humility, not being full of yourself. Humility is not being preoccupied with yourself. And I think this is really important to remember what pleases God, walking humbly, because it almost seems to contradict the first two, right? Act justly and love mercy, because some people who act justly, they're all about like warrior status, right? Like, yo, and I think that's appropriate at times. When you see a fire happening, you don't kind of wait around and everyone, okay, let's have a meeting about this. No, you got to rush into that. You run. But it's also got to be measured with a humble walking with God. There's got to be humility. There's got to be sometimes almost a slowing down so that we can be really effective when God calls us to do. Walking humbly. And, and I think it's one of the reasons why we gather together. One of the reasons why we gather together like this on, on Sundays. We also gather together in groups. Um, and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're already here, right? I mean, I'm assuming you value gathering together. But I think it's good to be reminded because if we're not careful gathering together, it can just be like the beginning of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, where we're saying, oh yeah, it's just about doing our sacrifice. It's about come doing my, my songs and the way we did three songs in the beginning and then listen to my sermon and do my three songs at the end and maybe drop an offering in if I got a little extra this month and kind of, you know, doing my little meet and greet thing and doing the church thing. If we forget why we do this, one of the reasons why we gather here other than obviously to honor God in that is um, not just about what we get out of it. And I'm not saying it's, impo- it's not important for you to receive. You need to receive. Receive freely from God. Know that God is like a waterfall. And sometimes what worship does, it moves us over to where the water is falling so we can receive his grace. That's appropriate. That's good. But why we also gather here is not always just about us. It's being reminded when we come here, yeah, I got a lot else going on, but this is a rhythm where God is going to stop me for a couple of hours to go do something that maybe is not so productive for me. Maybe not so convenient for me. It's going to force me to slow down. And some of you are go-getters. You're thinking about, you're even sitting here thinking, man, how much of my lawn could I do this couple hours? Man, think about the azaleas I could be growing in this time. 
Think about the brunch I'm missing. Oh, maybe I'm putting bad, evil thoughts in your mind. Think of, and we can think of all the things we can get done, but sometimes coming to gather here together is one of the healthiest things for our soul because it's forcing you to sit, slow down, hear from God, receive from him. Let it be like a mirror to your soul in all the ways you feel rushed, all the ways you feel pressured, all the things you need to get done, all that you need to accomplish, and being forced to be here with God humbly, but also with one another. Because what's one of the biggest challenges for actually doing the first two things, acting justly, loving mercy, and kindness? He said, we're just so busy. We don't know what's going on with each other's lives because we're all move, always moving. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. And sometimes the practices of slowing down, walking humbly, it slows us to be in a place where we can hear from God, but we can also hear from one another. We can hear what God is doing in our lives. We can hear our struggles. We come here to be centered on God, to grow in our humility. We submit to him. We consider those God has placed in our path. And we slow down enough that we'll actually care and listen about what they say. This is walking humbly with God. So what pleases God? What does God require? Act justly, love kindness, love, love kindness, mercy, walk humbly. And guys, these are good, these, these are truthful words of instruction of how we should please God. But they should also cut us to the core. They should, it cuts me to the core. Because if I consider these seriously, I'm seeing how I fall short. Because uh, the appropriate response to these words is not to say, yeah, three for three. Dope. What pleases God? This guy. <laughs> that, that is not the appropriate response here. Rather, this requires an honest assessment, like a mirror up to our souls, to see what God desires and, and to ask how the Spirit reveals our hearts. In what ways are we not desiring justice for others? In what ways have we refrained from kindness in our love? In what ways are we not slowing down and walking humbly with God? And maybe like me, maybe you're better than me, but if, if you're like me, maybe you feel like you fall woefully short. If you do, can I invite you to good news? Because there's plenty of good news here. Look at Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 2. Just a beautiful portion of prophecy where it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is amazing. And I mean, I don't know if any of you are geeking out about this as you look at it. Maybe it's just me. But you have all of this um, just difficult challenges. The, 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 the nation is crumbling. It's morally decaying. But what does Micah talk about? The promises of God that say, this is not going to have the last word. This is not going to have the last word. Because here's what's to come. And it talks about, oh, Bethlehem. That's saying we're pointing to the king who's to be coming. 
And you know where he's going to be born? In the least of the, uh, least of the tribes, in this place called Bethlehem, where no one would expect the king to come from. Because God always works through the humble. God always works through the small. God works through the things that everyone else thinks is insignificant. That's where the king is going to come from. And he's going to be born there. But you catch it as well. We're saying he's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I mean, it seems to be almost contradict one another because it's saying he's going to come from this place called Bethlehem, but then it says, oh, but he's ancient. He's coming from ancient days. What? This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about the Messiah King who's going to be born in this king called Bethlehem, but that's not what he came into life. He's been before there was time. He's the ancient of days. He's always been there. And now he's going to come to reveal himself in majesty. And so we see this. And it says, we are to act justly. And if you're like me, you see how you fall short. You say you really don't care that much for people beyond your immediate circle. And that's probably normal. Praise God that there is one who does. And his name's Jesus. Look at verse 4 there. It says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And catch this, they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. What it's saying is that in a world where if you are weak, if you're one of those nine words I mentioned where you can be taken advantage of, if you have no rights, if you have no power, you have no money, you have no means, everyone else takes advantage of you, there's a king coming who's going to make all that right. You are going to be secure now when you are fully insecure. When you're full of fear, there is a king coming who's going to say, now those who no one else is considered to have rights will have the full rights of a child of God. That's justice. We have a king coming who's full of justice, who's going to make everything that seems so wrong, right. And I love the last verse we read there, verse 5, and he shall be their peace. When you and I have a difficult time showing loving kindness, we're reminded that Jesus doesn't come and just talk about peace. He is our peace. How is he our peace? By taking a whole rogue group of people like you and me who just um, belittled him, who ignored him, who went our own way, who decided to see what God said. We are Israel, right? This is more descriptive of us. We've seen what God says. We said, forget that. I'm going to do my own thing. Yo, you got some beer to sell me? Hey, I'll listen to you. That's us. That's us. And what does he do? He lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. He acted justly. He loved mercy. He loved kindness. When we didn't, he goes to this thing called a cross to take upon the ways that we're not doing what we're supposed to do. All of the ways we fall short. All of the ways that we're refraining from what pleases God. Jesus pleased God. He was fully obedient. He lived the way, and he also took our penalty for not fully obeying God. And he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death. And he is our peace. He is our loving kindness. And how can you talk about walking humbly before God without talking about the cross? (laughs) That the King of kings, Lord of lords, and you all know this, right? Some people think Jesus is a chump. Like he had all these Roman soldiers coming to arrest him. And it's like, oh, Roman soldiers, what am I going to do? Like, like he got taken out of his own will? Y'all know in a moment he could call down like legions of angels to like wipe them all out. Right? You know that, right? You know that that, that punch that they threw or, or the, the whip that they scourged him with? You know that. I don't know biology. Well, you know like those DNA and the cells that were required to make those happen? You know God created all that, right? 
Then nothing happened outside of what Jesus intended and what he willed. He was not a patsy in this. He ordained these things. He walked humbly before his God. Why? Because he showed kindness and love to us. And he showed true justice being lived out. He walked humbly before God. So here, here's, here's where we are. You see what pleases God. And I want you to take this seriously. You should not be able to walk out of here and say, oh yeah, that's great, I got it. You should be trembling and saying, that's what pleases God? There's no way I can do that. I'm self-centered. I'm just trying to survive. I don't care about justice. I'm just trying to make it to tomorrow. I don't want to show kindness to someone because people stink. And the world revolves around us. If that's you, good news is saying, there is one who has done it. His name is Jesus bow down before him, worship him, submit yourself to him, and say, Jesus, I want to trust you with my life because you've done what I couldn't do, and you will reign victorious. Amen? Stand with me. I want to invite you as you, as you just take, close your eyes for a moment and just let the Spirit of God speak to you right now. Man, and I was just really convicted in those words of talking about what does not please God. And I think as a church, we've got to be really careful that we don't let our religious expression just settle into doing this thing we call service, say, once a week. If there's no heart behind it. Because this, I mean, this is not bad. This is extremely good. But if it's not also exhibiting itself in a life of acting justice, doing justice of loving kindness, of walking humbly with God, we've got to ask, do we really know what it means to please God? Because the good news is, Jesus pleases the Father by His actions, by His sacrifice. And if you are in Him, you can now also please the Father. Praise God. Live in that hope. Live in that hope. If you don't know God here, this is not a, a condemning message to say, man, woe is you. This is good news to say, there is hope for you as well. It's not about you trying to be a good person. It's about knowing the one who is good. Trust your life with him. Trust in him. Trust in him. Heavenly Father, as we stand before you here, I'm sure different aspects of these different things convict all of us in, in a myriad of ways. Lord, whatever that looks like for each of us, would you draw us to your presence? Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you that you don't show us how we're supposed to be to please you and just leave it to us to try to do it, because we couldn't. But Jesus came to be our rescuer. He came to be our hero. So now, Lord, we remember Jesus, and we make it all about Jesus, that our justice, our kindness, our humility would come out of knowing Jesus. So help us even as we sing. Help us as we receive this supper here to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice and why we can even have the hope to try to please you. And Lord, for those of us who have been wrestling with trying to be a good person and just falling short, feeling miserable about ourselves, wrestling with guilt and shame, would this be a message of hope that in you we can actually do these things without condemnation? So help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. So I want to invite you right now to pray, sing. If you're a Christian, come up. You're invited to the table.
Take a piece of the wafer. Remember the body of Jesus that was broken and shredded. And dip it in the cup while you're up here. Be reminded of the sacrifice that forgives us of our sins. And rejoice. Amen? Rejoice. Praise God and live in that freedom as God has called us to. So you can take some time before you do that. But let's pray. Sing. Pray with one another if God leads you. And let's respond to how God is working in our lives here.